Good morning to everyone who's here. Very good to see you all again. If you want to turn in your Bibles, we are up to chapter 3 now in 1 Timothy. Uh, and I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. So we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 13. And these are the words of God. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity and keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless." Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence for the faith in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And you can be seated. So... One of the reasons that our very first preaching series in, as a church plant is in 1 Timothy is because there are lots of instructions on how to properly order church life in this epistle. So and as we want to shape and nurture this church plant, we're going to create our own unique culture. Right? Every church has a culture. Uh, and culture, a good definition of culture is uh, anywhere you find it, culture is just religion externalized. Okay? What's Canadian culture? It's the heart religion of Canada put on display. What is the culture of a church or of a family? It's the heart religion of that group put out on display. So culture is just externalized religion. And this church is already forming one, and we will continue to by God's grace. So it's not a bad thing, we just have to be mindful of what's happening. We earnestly desire here that the worship, preaching, care, and the governance of the church are not things that we can just make up on the go. This isn't just our ideas, what we think is best. And likewise, our worship uh, cannot be whatever we want it to be. Okay? Um, and this is something that is, is important to recapture yet again. This is something that's always important to recapture. At the time of the Reformation, so many man-made traditions had worked their way into the Catholic Mass, into the Catholic worship service, uh, that, that a real need was seen that we get rid of some of these unbiblical practices. And so the first wave of reformers said, well, if there's anything in the worship service that is contrary to scripture, we have to get rid of it, right? And that seems obvious, of course. If something's happening here that's not biblical, we have to get rid of it. And the next wave of reformers went further, and they said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who's the audience for a worship service? Is it the people or is it God? And the right answer, of course, is it's God that's the audience. So who are we seeking to please here? God and God alone. Therefore, we have to do things that God says will bring him glory when we worship. 
Okay, worship is not a free-for-all of our ideas, what we find meaningful, what we find special, what gives us an emotional thrill, uh, and just assume that that's somehow then appropriate. It may or it may not be. There's nothing wrong with emotions, and if we're worshiping well, our emotions are tied up into what we're doing. But we have to be mindful that we are here to glorify God, uh, and so this is his church, his rules. And the way we know what will glorify him is by asking him, and he speaks in his word. Uh, there's one great story. Some of you have heard me told this before. Uh, one of my favorite preachers, a Scottish man by the name of Alistair Begg, uh, in a church service that operates very similar to what we're doing here, uh, he had had someone come and said, you know, the, the preaching was good, and, and I've got friends here, and this is all good, uh, but he'd come from a background where there was a dance team with streamers, and there was fog lights and, and everything else, and he said, but I just really didn't get anything out of the worship. And Alistair Begg looked at him, and in his Scottish accent, he said, oh, that's no problem. We weren't here to worship you. <laughs> okay? We need to keep in mind who we are worshiping when we're here. This isn't about us bubbling over emotionally. This isn't about us. This is about God. And he dictates then the, the bounds of what's acceptable uh, in worship. We will make mistakes. However, we have an opportunity with something new like this to build things right the first time so that extensive rental work isn't required later. And we live in an age where evangelicalism as a whole has become incredibly shallow. It's become very gimmicky. It's fad-driven. Uh, and, and evangelicalism today in our culture, to a very large degree, in all too many instances, has become divorced from, from Scripture and from her own history. We don't know who we are. Uh, and by God's grace, we want to build something that will stand the test of time here. And so a couple things that you'll already notice, and this bears explanation periodically, just so we understand what we're doing here. Two ways in which we want this to show is in family-integrated worship. Right? Everyone is here, young to old, and that's incredibly important. Okay? How often does 0 to 4 go that way, 5 to 10 over there, 10 to 14 over there, uh, you know, up to 18 over there, and it's only the adults in the church, and that is an absolute tragedy. That's a tragedy. It really is. Because what it's telling subconsciously to children, you don't belong here, this isn't your church, this church is just for the grown-ups, and that's the wrong message. Further, how will children grow into maturity if they're always sent off? Okay? How do children learn how to speak? By being around when grown-ups are talking. And it stretches their vocabulary. It stretches the categories in their mind. That's how they learn to become adults, is by being around adults. Okay? How are you going to learn the flow and the, the vocabulary and the songs and the rhythm of worship if there's children's church doing their own thing separate from the body? Okay? Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Children belong in the family of God. So children belong here, not separated from the family of God. And the other place that shows up is in what's called covenant renewal worship, which is what we're practicing. And you see the, the five major headings here, these five C's in the bulletin. This isn't new. This is old as the hills. Uh, but we are trying to explain and be intentional about the way we think about how we structure a worship service. And a worship service, well thought through, works much like how God makes covenants with people. Okay? Uh, all through the Old Testament, God deals with covenants. And there's a certain pattern to it. So our call to worship is essentially God saying, you know, Abram, come over here. I've got something to tell you. Come here. Come to me. Okay? This is the call to worship. We reenact that uh, as we get together and start the worship service. And then the confession of sin, right? Every time God makes a covenant with someone, he reminds them of their sinfulness and of his grace. And so it's fitting 
that in our confession, we are reminded ourselves of the, the law of God and then his gospel. Every week, we need to be reminded that God's law kills us and his gospel makes us alive. And that needs to be part of the rhythm so that we're learning not just with words, but with rhythm. And then the consecration. This is the teaching moment. This is where God explains what he's about to do or what he's doing. And, and our uh, expression of that is in the preaching as well as in our prayer. Communion is something that we are not practicing yet. We are going to get there, trying to do this smoothly. Uh, but we will be practicing communion here before long. And of course, this fits, right? Before God sends Abram out of the tent, he strengthens him with bread and wine to go on his way. You need to be fed. You need to be reminded that I will take care of your needs. I will give you your daily bread here. Before you go, take this. And he strengthens him on the way. And then lastly, the commissioning, the, the blessing, the benediction uh, is God's final blessing as we go and uh, go about our weekly tasks. And so again, this isn't just to be rote tradition. This isn't to be mindless. We need to be thinking about why uh, a worship service is structured the way it is. And we're used to many of these elements anyway, uh, but it's good to think about it so it doesn't just become vain repetition. So it doesn't just become just tradition. We need to be thinking about what we're doing. And the patterns and the rhythms help us to understand the gospel better. So our desire here is to be faithful stewards in God's house, not just in what we do, not just in the content, but also in how we do it, in the forms, in the patterns. And forms do make a big difference, uh, probably more than what we sometimes think. Right? We, we sometimes think, well, it's just, you know, the style doesn't matter as long as the content is right, and content is, of course, right. Uh, but an easy example uh, to think about this, of how forms matter, and I think many musicians, we have some highly trained musicians here that I hope won't get on my case if I get this wrong, but forms matter, right? If you're watching a movie, the music is letting you know, apart from the story, whether you're supposed to be happy or sad or scared, right? The music is letting you know without any lyrical content. Music is doing stuff, okay? Uh, and you can't take, uh, it's playoff season in young kids hockey, so you can't take kickstart my heart and rockabye baby and just do a lyric swap and then think that that song is appropriate to get a hockey team fired up right just because of the lyrics the music does something likewise you're not going to play hair metal to a baby to help them fall asleep just because you put rockabye baby lyrics into it the music is working the music is doing something apart from the lyrics okay so forms really matter uh, as one philosopher said, that the media is the message. The way we communicate something is part of the message. Okay? The way we communicate something is part of the message. And that's body language, that's forms, uh, that's music. Uh, and you see it in all kinds of things. Many of you, if you've been to a, a Roman Catholic church service, what do you see at the center is an altar. Why? Because the elements, the mass, the bread and the wine, are the thing. And the lectern is off to the side because the homily that the priest gives is a little 15-minute devotional, typically, and it's off to the side because that's of secondary importance. What really matters is the elements, the mass. And in Protestant worship, what do we have? We have the pulpit moved to the center and the altar is below it or off to the side. Why? Because the preached word is the thing that we are here for, uh, and the elements, communion, and so forth, as important as they are, are of a lesser nature. So even our pulpits, the placement, and the way they are structured tells us something about what we believe about what's happening in the worship service. So we can't just play with the forms and think it's not going to change anything. Many of us are well aware, uh, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorites in The Abolition of Man, he talks about this, how forms matter. 
Uh, and he says in his famous book here, that in a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate the geldings and bid the geldings be fruitful. Okay? Uh, and if we just aren't thinking about forms, if we're not thinking, well, it doesn't matter how we do this, uh, we can't expect our geldings to have all our mares in full come springtime. It doesn't work that way. Okay? And likewise, as we structure this uh, in a church worship service, if you're going to have a concert atmosphere instead of a congregational singing atmosphere, your theology of corporate worship is going to change, even if you're singing perfectly good songs. What's happening in your head is changing the way you think about things. Or if you have a preacher in his skinny jeans sitting at a bar stool with his Starbucks and his phone, even if what he says is perfectly fine, your theology of preaching is changing. The form is communicating to you what is happening here, and your mind is working that data in to make sense of it. And so because forms matter, and because we have a unique opportunity to start from scratch here, we don't have bad habits yet. I'm sure we will pick up many, but by God's grace, we need to be aware of those and keep working at it. We want God's word to be central of every part of what we're doing here. And we discover what glorifies God by examining scripture. And so by God's grace, we hope to do that in our music, right? It's congregational, lyrically sound. We desire to do that with our preaching and teaching. Once we're with communion and baptism, we hope to do it with these elements or the sacraments of the church. Uh, and today we're going to look at specifically a church government. Uh, how does God desire the church to be led? And this is an important question, especially at the front end here. And so today's text lays out the design for how Christ's church ought to be governed. And I am preaching to myself and so this is a bit scary. Uh, this applies to those of us in leadership, but it's important that everyone knows how this works. So, just like last week, uh, the goal here isn't just to commit a few arbitrary rules to memory, but to help us understand why, why would God do it this way, right? God said so is an adequate answer in one sense, uh, but we want more than that, right? Kids are usually unsatisfied if they're told, well, you're not allowed to do that. Well, why not? Well, because Dad said so. Maybe that's enough, but it helps the child to understand, okay, why does dad say so? Help me understand here so that that obedience can be heartfelt and not just based on external force and pressure. We need to understand why would God do it this way. And so because of that, I'm going to rely fairly heavily on what we talked about last week, last week's passage at the end of chapter 2. Uh, if you weren't here, you can listen to that. We have it on sermon audio uh, so I'm going to be relying a fair bit on that. So if there's missing gaps here, hopefully that can help to fill in some of the gaps. Uh, but some of what we covered last week will just simply be assumed this morning. So starting in verse 1, it says here, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone desire, aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. And at first glance, we might say, well, that's not very humble. Someone wants to be a church elder, right? Shouldn't they fight it kicking and screaming? Wouldn't that be uh, true humility? Uh, however, there's nothing wrong with finding joy in the kinds of things that God would have us do. Okay? Uh, if God has you as a carpenter, there's nothing wrong with finding joy in that. Okay? If you're a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, a stay-at-home mom, a truck driver, there's nothing wrong with finding joy in your work. In fact, it's good. Okay? It's good. Your work is a gift from God. Enjoy it. Uh, and in uh, John Piper's ministry, his catchphrase for ministry is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Okay? Think about that. Say it again. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. 
The more satisfied, the more we are delighted in God and what he's doing, the more glory God gets. Because he has a child now who's not just following the rules, but who's enjoying it, who's delighting in it, who's seeing what God is doing, uh, and there's joy in the obedience. So joy isn't like a pie chart where the, the more joy I have, that means there's less left over for God. So the more miserable I am, the more happy God is, right? That's not how it works. And too many Christians think that way, right? Well, for God to really be happy, I guess I just have to be a miserable wretch and poor me, right? Uh, and that's not at all what God is happy with. One way we can think about this is in our own marriages. I remember a few years ago, we used to pasture our dry cows across the gravel pit, and there was a wild rose bush growing there. And I, you know, Tanya was decorating our house and uh, cleaning, and there was fresh roses there. So I went and I cut a few off, and I brought them to the house. Okay? And many of you have done something similar in your family. Now, if she is delighted in what you have done for her, what brings her more joy? What completes the joy of this thing is saying, I'm your husband. I had to do it, right? If you're Eeyore, is there any joy, right? That's, that's not how this works. God doesn't want us to be a bunch of Eeyores. What, what completes this? Say, well, you're worth it. I love you. Thank you for all you do in our house. I thought these roses would be a good fit, okay? It's because I love you. Now, my joy is greater, and as my joy gets greater, her joy gets greater, okay? And this is how it works with God, Okay? The more we are seeing what God is doing, the more heartfelt our obedience is, the more heartfelt our obedience is, the more we see God's glory in the thing. Okay? And so it's like this feedback loop. I'm happier, God is more glorified. The more I see that, the happier I get. This is like a fire that we're building. Okay? It's a feedback loop, it's not a pie chart. And so when we look at church eldership, two things are, health, are, are proper for healthy eldership. One is called the internal call, right? So this man aspires to be an elder. This is something he feels that God has called him to, perhaps gifted him with. And there should also be an external call. Uh, you shouldn't be the guy that just pushes yourself on other people or, or let the elders know, well, uh, I was told in a dream last night that I'm actually supposed to take over here. Okay? Uh, it, it's healthy if other people see the same gifting and the same calling. So there's the internal call. I feel this. I feel God is leading me. Uh, and there's a recognition on behalf of others that, yes, you are gifted. Uh, we want you to serve in this position. So we don't force ourselves on people just because there's an inner compulsion. Uh, but we don't have to say yes just because someone says it if there's nothing in us that feels uh, gifted or adequate for the calling. So ideally, there's a mutual agreement between the man who's being called and the church that's calling him. And the word overseer here uh, is used in this text. Depending on your translation, it may have a different word. Uh, but there's lots of words that are essentially completely interchangeable here. Uh, the word presbyteros, from which we know the word Presbyterians, right? We know Presbyterian Christians, uh, comes from this. It's, it's one translation of this word. Episcopos, right? The Episcopal Church outside of England. The Anglican Church is called the Episcopal Church. It's based on the same thing here. Bishops, elders, overseers, pastors, ministers. These words are all interchangeable. These aren't separate offices. They're all different words for the same kind of office for a church leader. And in our setting here, the most familiar terms for us are probably elder or minister or pastor. But understand it's all the same. We're all looking at the same thing. Verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Okay, and this is a tall order. And if this was a demand for absolute perfection, of course, nobody would ever be able to serve as an elder of a church. But this is looking for a pattern, not for perfection. Uh, 
Above reproach doesn't mean there's no sin, um, again, or no one would be qualified. It does mean that there isn't a public scandal which attaches to the elder. Okay? Um, and we have to think carefully about this too, because if we go around and push from the other side, we might be remembering what Jesus says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Okay, so what do we do with that? Here Paul is telling Timothy he should be above reproach. Jesus says, if everyone likes you, you better be careful. Watch out for your soul if everybody likes you. How do we put that together? Okay, because we can't have contradictions. Unbelievers tend to save all their criticism for those who are effective at pushing back the kingdom of darkness. And so this is why the world doesn't typically uh, direct their criticism of Christianity at megachurch marketers, right? Uh, Joel Austin is not a threat to the kingdom of darkness. Uh, and so therefore you don't have lots of people uh, outraged at Joel Austin, although it may happen. Uh, but it's typically the, the fire is reserved for men who are making a difference, who are clear in their teaching, right? This is why there's hit pieces on men like John MacArthur or on men like Douglas Wilson. They're actually effective at pushing back the kingdom of darkness, and therefore we should expect that unbelievers are going to save their firepower for those men. Okay? They're reserving their fire uh, smartly for where it matters. And so the way we understand this together should be this. The elder should be above reproach in the way he lives so that the allegations don't stick to him. Okay? Live in a way that the allegations don't stick. If you're an effective soldier in God's kingdom, however, expect criticism. Expect rumors, expect gossip, expect hit pieces. If there's gunfire coming at you, that probably means you're over the correct target. Okay? Criticism and difficulty may be a sign, not that you're outside the will of God, but that you're right where God would have you. However, that's not an excuse for bad behavior. Okay? We need to live with the kind of integrity that the allegations don't stick. But making an allegation and having it stick are two different things, and we need to think clearly about that. So we need to live above reproach, and this isn't just for leaders, this is for all Christians. We need to live above reproach, but then also not be shocked off our rocker or dismayed when uh, those who oppose God's kingdom work aren't happy with you. The husband of one wife is the next qualification, and this has been understood in various ways. Uh, some of our Roman Catholic friends who have a celibate, unmarried priesthood would say, well, the church is the man's wife. Okay? That's, that's the wife that he's married to, and therefore he shouldn't have a human wife. Um, and I think that's a stretch, because there's going to be qualifications for how this man uh, handles his children. So there's household rules coming, so it doesn't make sense that his wife is the church. It seems to be that this is an actual living, breathing woman that he is married to. Some have suggested that this text means that widowers and single men aren't eligible, but this is unlikely because Paul may have been single or very likely was a widower, uh, and widows and widowers are elsewhere encouraged to remarry. Okay? So there's, it's unlikely that this is what's in view here. Uh, some have suggested that any divorced man is ineligible, and there may be some validity here. But we have to think through this carefully. We have to think about the circumstance here as well. What if the divorce happened before the man's conversion? Okay? What if he became a Christian 28 years after that failed marriage? Or what if the divorce was a biblical one? He was abandoned. Uh, okay? uh, is he forever disqualified? 
I think you, this is why church governance actually matters, is to, to look at the circumstances, uh, and so we don't have just a cookie-cutter rule, but we need to look at the, the, the facts of the case. And divorce is, in fact, a serious matter. So therefore, the circumstances of a divorce should be factored in prayerfully, uh, but I'm not sure that this is saying that no matter what, no matter when it happened, no matter the circumstances, uh, if there's a divorce, you are forever barred from service, although some certainly would take that position. I think here, the main point has to do with sexual immorality. Okay? And polygamy and adultery were live issues in the church and in the culture in which the Ephesian church was being planted here. Uh, so uh, polygamy and adultery would have been well known to both uh, Paul and to Timothy. These were real, on-the-ground issues. And the way that the Greek structure in the sentence works here, it gives the indication that this is a one-woman man. Okay? That's what's in view here. Uh, and so this does become practical in instances of adultery or polygamy. Okay, and one is actually much more straightforward than the other. Uh, adultery is pretty straightforward. Uh, if you're involved, stop it. Stop it. Okay? Um, and it's forgivable. Okay? Uh, if Paul could be forgiven for killing Christians, surely adultery and anger and theft and all other sins uh, can and should be forgiven by God and then by the church as well. But the man who was guilty of this is, in fact, a full equal in the church. Granted, his sins have been forgiven. And his sin and guilt and shame are forgiven not just by God, but then the church recognizes that as well. However, the circumstances in that situation do prevent him from serving. But there's another practice that was widespread in some cultures and, and still is, to some degree, practiced in the world today. What do you do if you already have three wives when you become a Christian? Okay, what do you do? Think about that. There's some weight there. What do you do if you have three wives and then you become a Christian? Is divorcing two of them going to make the situation better or worse? Which two do you divorce? Okay, you throw them out on the street, is that right? This was a real issue. Okay, uh, and the way the church has typically answered that is this. God takes us where we are, not where we should have been. Okay. So don't divorce these wives. For sure don't take any more. Let's keep this complex situation from getting worse. So don't add another wife. And don't send two of, or all of them packing. Okay? Uh, fulfill your obligations that you promised to make to these ladies. But the situation that you're in is too contrary to the design of God for you to serve as an elder in God's church. Okay? Your, your family situation is communicating a message that just is not fitting with uh, what God is doing. And so this man, even though he can be forgiven and he's a full equal in the church, uh, cannot serve as an elder because his lifestyle just is too contrary to what God has designed. This doesn't make him a second-hand Christian. You don't need to be serving in church leadership to be a first-rate Christian. Okay? There's not classes of Christians. Either you're forgiven or you're not. Okay? You're in Adam or you're in Christ. That's really that it. Uh, but in terms of leading, in terms of setting an example, a polygamist or a man involved in adultery uh, cannot serve in that situation. Next qualification is that this man is to be sober-minded. Okay, so he's one that is not inclined to impaired thinking. He's self-controlled. This is pretty straightforward, uh, but hold that thought because as we talk about different layers of government, this will become important, uh, but we know what self-controlled is. Uh, respectable means that he handles himself with dignity and honor. 
so that respect doesn't just come to him because he has doctor or reverend or pastor as a title, but because his conduct actually is worthy of the respect. Okay, so this, this is uh, respect based on your character, not based on your office or on your title or on your academic credentials. It must be hospitable. Okay, and so those who would shepherd the flock of God need to take time to get to know people, hear their story, understand what the situation is. And when difficulties inevitably come, there's a relationship that you're involved with that, uh, that you can get involved in and help and, and to be maximum benefit. And he is able to teach. And this is one of the qualifications that, which is different from the list that we have for deacons. Uh, we learn in Acts 6 that the office of deacon was established to help the elders when it just got too much to wait on tables and to feed people. And so the office of deacon was established to help them with that, that the elders, that the apostles, could continue to teach and to govern. Okay? So deacons were established to help with the practical day-to-day operations with people's physical needs. It doesn't mean deacons can't teach. They certainly can. But it's not required of them uh, as it is for, uh, for an elder. And historically, again, the church has had a distinction here that there's ruling elders and teaching elders. Not all elders necessarily are teachers or preachers either, but they are involved in the governance of the church. The man is to not be a drunkard, and this connects back to being sober-minded, right? Think of how many of these traits are canceled out when you're drunk. Are you respectable when you're drunk? Are you self-controlled when you're drunk? Okay, Uh, so drunkenness uh, clearly cancels out many of the other things that would qualify a man. Drunkenness... Uh, is not respectable. He must not be violent, but gentle and not quarrelsome. And again, this fits. You're starting to see a pattern. This fits with the other traits. So this man isn't known for being volatile or for being a hothead or or being unable to contain his rage. Uh, Rather, he works at de-escalating a situation, understanding things and bringing the temperature down. He's stable. Okay? Uh, And uh, quarrelsome... I think probably also requires some work because all it takes to be considered quarrelsome today is to disagree with anything, right? The latest round of ungodliness comes and say, "Ah, no, you know what? I'm going to stick with two genders. Well, you hate her, right? And you're this radical. Well, no, you're not a radical. You're living in the real world. Uh, And in the Bible's definition of the divisive person in the church isn't the one who's going to stick with what they were taught. The divisive person, according to scripture, is the person who innovates, the person who brings new ideas into the church, new doctrines, that's the divisive man. And we need to be careful of a, of a biblical definition because now the divisive people in the world's eyes are anyone who wants to keep things or preserve things, right? Well, if you're not going along with the latest idea, you must be divisive. You're a hater, okay? And the Bible says, no, the one who hates the church is the one who's trying to import new ideas. That's the guy who hates the church, okay? And so we need to be careful uh, how we understand the word quarrelsome here. So the, the preacher's job, the elder's job, does involve correcting false teaching, but this should never be the main feature or the only feature of his teaching. The, the bulk of teaching should be to build the body up, to paint a positive picture of what we're doing here. Uh, but let's keep in mind, how much of the New Testament would be written if there weren't errors in the church? You wouldn't have a New Testament if there weren't errors in the church because every book is written to address the errors in the church. Okay? So we have, to, we have to hold that together. And then he's not a lover of money. So as a general rule, ministry is not a particularly high-paying job. In some cases, it can be. But the minister must be motivated by his love of the church and of a desire to help others to see the glory of God. If he's in ministry, just because he needs a paycheck and something to do, 
he would probably serve himself and the church better if he found other work. Okay? You, you have to want this. You have to desire it. Uh, and some, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once told a student, if you can be happy doing anything else, please don't enter the ministry. Okay? The only way you're going to be happy in ministry is if you cannot stay out of it. That's the only way you're going to be happy. If you can be happy being an electrician, don't enter the ministry. Go be an electrician. Okay? It's important that that internal call is there. And then we have the household connections here. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Okay, and this is the qualification that has the most um, explanation, and it clearly connects running a family to running a church, and I think this is very significant, because this theme of government does in fact show up. Okay, and so, like we talked about last week, God is delighted in distinctions. He's creative. So we have land and sea, birds and fish, male and female, uh, but we also have different kinds of government. Okay, and and when, in our time, when we hear government, what do you think of? Well, the Manitoba government or the Canadian government or the British government. Okay, but government is far more in everything than just national or political or civil governments. Okay, uh, and, and I talked last time, we tend to see governments as these Russian nesting dolls, right? And the state is the biggest doll that just swallows up everything. The state owns your business. The state owns your face. The state owns your family. The state owns your land. The state, the state, the state, the state, right? And we think of that as government, and it swallows all lesser governments up in it. And that is not a Christian view of how this works whatsoever. A better way to conceptualize this is there's little circles of authority that God puts all over creation, there's family government, there's self-government, right? That's self-control. There's church government, there's academic government. There's all these governments, and sometimes they overlap. But the big circle around all of them is not the civil government with unlimited authority. It's Christ, okay? There, it's Christ. Separation of church and state doesn't mean separation of church and God. God is God over all. He's God over all the governments, Okay? And we need to think about that closely as we think about family government, self-government, church government. Okay? Everything is ultimately under God's authority, but then he delegates authority within those different spheres. And family is the most fundamental form of all the governments. One, because it's the earliest. Adam and Eve had a family government before there was a hockey team to manage, before there was a civil government, before there was a church to govern, there was a family government. A man and his wife. Okay? That was a real legitimate government without any nations or any chambers of commerce uh, that also needed government. So it is the earliest. And family is also the foundation that feeds people into all these other circles of government, all these other spheres of government. Okay? Uh, and this is inevitable because every person who's ever been born comes from a family. Okay? And there's broken families, there's dysfunctional families, there's runaway dads, yes to all of that. But everyone who has ever been born was born because... Uh, a covenant, a one flesh union was made between a man and a woman. And so family is inescapable. And in this family government, the husband or the father is the one on whom the whole responsibility and headship falls. And so we want to look at the importance of why the qualifications for an elder are so closely linked to his family and also why all these descriptors are in the masculine sense. Okay? It must be a man who serves as an elder, and I know that's controversial today, but biblically it seems clear. And so why is this so connected to his family? Okay? And the family is where he is tested and where he trains to see whether he can stay committed to a job, to financial responsibility, okay? 
to see if he's able to run a business or a city or a province or a hockey team or a police force or a nation. And this is also where he's tested to see if he's qualified to take part in leading Christ's bride, the church. So in this sense, every family is a little church and every husband is a pastor in some sense. He has souls under his care and it's on him to make sure that the family gets here on time in the morning, that you're reading the Bible at home, that you're doing family devotions, that you're praying together, that you're teaching your children. When your five-year-old comes up to you and he's got a question, you better have an answer ready, okay? Uh, Because you'll have an answer, and it'll either be the kind of answer that the kid has to unlearn when he's 35, because mom and dad didn't have a good answer, or it's going to be an answer that helps him to see the world properly, okay? That's one of the reasons we have men's theology night. Not that women shouldn't learn theology, but men have to. You have to, or else you're going to confuse your kids with bad answers, okay? So in this sense, every man who has a wife and children is pastoring a little church. He's trying his hand at shepherding. And if he is failing and struggling here, he should not be looking for more people to uh, bring under his care. The connection of family building and church building is tied together in a very other important way that's critical in our time for us to understand this well. Okay. So in this contemporary view where the state is everything, the state is the big circle that encompasses every part of life, it is in the best interest for those lesser authorities to be weakened, okay? to atomize the culture, like little atoms, right? So you've just got little electrons and protons just floating around everywhere. Uh, it's this divide and conquer idea. The more you can separate people into individual units, the easier they are to control, the easier they are to steer. And this individualism is rampant in the church, right? And I talked about how much we do demographic uh, worship, that it's not even corporate worship. We separate everyone. That's contributing to the atomization of society, to atomizing everyone, pulling everyone apart so they're easy to conquer. And the church should be pushing in the other direction. Okay? God made families, and he made churches, and he made communities to have molecular strength. So we're not just a bunch of atoms that are all floating there, Atoms form bonds, okay? They form molecules, and there's strength there. And if you have that strength in a small community, on your basketball team, or you have it in a church, or you have it in your family, you are more resistant to external force. You can stick together, okay? That's why families need to be here, to worship together. This isn't a separate time. This is family training. So young and old all belong in Christ's church. We have gifts to share with each other, and we have molecular strength that we need to bond together. And that's what family devotions at supper time are about too. That's what prayers at bedtime are about. You're, you're building that molecular strength. You're less easy to steer and to be broken. And we need to be mindful of this. Okay? Uh, when we get free stuff, if there's checks coming from the government, what does, a, what does a man need to do for his family? Nothing. The government's your daddy. And we need universal child care, right? Okay? Well, why do we need that? Well, because the state's also going to be your mummy. Okay? You don't need dad to provide. You don't need mom to take care of the babies. The government will do it. Okay? Why do you need a church? The public educators are there to teach children about right and wrong. Why do you need a minister telling you about God's law? There's nine robed justices on the Supreme Court that are bringing law down from Sinai. Why do you need a minister to tell you about God's law? Okay? Uh, all these things, there's rival authorities in play, and we need to be careful of what Uh, how we think about this, how we process this. And all this stuff that we're surrounding ourselves with is turning us into slaves when God would have us live as free men and women. 
And when we see what God is doing, when he knits a family and a church together, we see how community, authority, and responsibility work. And this is in sharp contrast to the popular view where the state is all in all. God says he is all in all. And God deals in covenants, not in one-off side deals. Okay, so we need to get this into our bloodstream. Covenants have a covenant head, someone who represents other people. That's what a husband is. That's what a father is. That's what a church elder is, is a covenant head who goes to God on behalf of these people and says, God, forgive me. My family's a mess. God, forgive me. I'm not reading the Bible with my children at night. God, please forgive me. Help my children. Soften their hearts. Lord, it's on me. It's on me that my wife is unhappy. God, help me, please. Okay? God, this is your church. Help us men who are trying to lead it. Give us wisdom. Okay? We're representing, and this representational element is there. This is how God works. He works in covenants. Abram and Moses and David represent more than Abram and Moses and David, and Christ represents more than just himself. This also means that church leadership is necessarily masculine work, just as being the head of a family is. Male and female, of course, are equal, but we are designed for gloriously different tasks, and I gave the definition of biblical masculinity last week, and I'll share it again. Write it down. Biblical masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. Biblical masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. And so it follows, and you'll see how this works. Look around you. It follows that strong men are hard on their fam- or hard for their families, and weak men are hard on their families. Okay? Strong leaders are hard for their churches. Weak leaders are hard on their churches. Okay? This carries over. It's masculine. There's nothing wrong with being masculine, if you're a man, that is. If we understand the design features of the way God has made this, of masculinity and femininity, it's just plain and obvious that church leadership is a masculine calling. And this isn't because men are better or more well-educated or more emotionally stable or better public speakers. It's because we are designed to symbolize Christ and our women are designed to symbolize the church. That's why we refer to the church as her or she. This is the glory of Christ, is the church. Of course you refer to the church as a she. That's what she is. And so we need to think like Christians all the way down here in a culture that is hostile to absolutely everything I have just said. If we start with the popular humanistic assumptions about gender, and then we come to a text like this, and these these qualifications are male-oriented, we're going to have lots of confusion. And I was in a conversation not long ago with someone who wanted to believe what the Bible said, and she saw, okay, yeah, for some reason it does seem to be that it needs to be a man or a husband, and, and she wanted to accept that shit, but it just makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense. Like, this is just an arbitrary law because anywhere you go, men and women are completely interchangeable, right? The, the, the cabinet and government is 50 male, 50 female. Like, it just it makes no sense why God would have men lead the church. But that's what happens when you try to take biblical data bits and put it in a secular way of thinking. We need to change our whole way of thinking and see what is gender there in the first place. And that's why I say I'm relying on what we did last week. I'm not going to paint that whole picture again. But this is also where forms become so necessary, right? A woman taking her husband's last name is actually important because it communicates male representation in the family, okay? She is putting herself under the care, under the responsibility of her husband, and the husband has a serious responsibility because whoever bears his name, he is responsible for. So it's important that we do that. 
Uh, And you'll hear me talk about man or mankind instead of humankind. Not that we don't know what's being communicated, but I think it's important to reinforce with our speech, okay? Uh, And even with scripture translations, where there's gender-neutral scripture translations, I think we need to be thinking through what is that doing in our mind about this vision for how God would have things work, okay? Uh, And again, this doesn't mean women are dishrags or that they're, you know, place is just in the home. The Proverbs, the Proverbs 31 woman has a business. She's cutting real estate deals. She's an active woman. She was not just pregnant and barefoot in the kitchen. Okay, So that's not what we're trying to reenact some 1950s ideal here. We're trying to be biblical in our thinking. Okay, Titus 2 makes it clear that the priority is the home and the man's priority is uh, leading to build a well-ordered family and well-ordered churches in this situation. Okay, So this isn't just about a tie-breaking vote This isn't about force. This isn't about authority. It's about setting the temperature, right? Uh, And we can say that this task might even be more skillful for women. Think of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. That's before my time, right? But everything that Fred Astaire did, Ginger Rogers had to do backwards and in high heels. Who's more gifted? (laughs) Okay, in many ways, you could say Ginger Rogers is the hero, but Fred Astaire is leading. Okay, that's our job. This is a dance that we're to lead. This isn't some kind of authoritarian tiebreaker that now we're just coming down with the law. It should never get to that point because we should be leading at all times. We should be setting the temperature in our homes and in our churches at all times. And so when we, we think about this and we think of a biblical vision for how this works, it should just seem obvious. It shouldn't seem like an arbitrary rule that makes no sense with the world as we know it. We need to see the world as we know it through a scriptural lens. Okay? And if we do otherwise, that's like trying to run our diesel tractor on propane or putting on your football helmet and grabbing a golf club and standing out in left field. Okay? You don't need to take a guy seriously if he's standing in left field with a hockey stick. Okay? He doesn't know where things fit. Commenting on this move at the midpoint of the last century of how the church was getting soft on some of these things, a pastor from Toronto, A.W. Tozer, who's a hero of the faith, said this, that if Christianity is to receive a rejuvenation, it must be by other means than any that are now being used. If the church in the second half of this century is going to recover from the injuries she suffered in the first half, there must appear a new type of preacher. The proper ruler of the synagogue type will never do. Neither will the priestly type of man who carries out his duties, takes his pay, and asks no questions. Nor the smooth-talking pastoral type Who knows how to make the Christian religion acceptable to everyone? All these have been tried and found wanting. Another kind of religious leader must arise among us. He must be of the old prophet type, a man who has seen visions of God and has heard a voice from the throne. When he comes, and I pray to God there will be not one but many, he will stand in flat contradiction to everything our smirking, smooth civilization holds dear. He will contradict denounce and protest in the name of God and will earn the hatred and opposition of a large segment of Christianity. Such a man is likely to be lean, rugged, blunt-spoken, and a little bit angry with the world. He will love Christ and the souls of men to the point of willingness to die for the glory of the one and the salvation of the other, but he will fear nothing that breathes with mortal breath. Okay? Is Christianity today marked by the kind of man that Tozer was praying for? Is that what we're marked by? And if not, then let's get to it. Lastly here, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. 
Okay, and this could be a reference to earlier on where the, we know that the men who fell away at the beginning of the book of Timothy uh, were, in fact, in church leadership. Uh, and so time will be helpful to tell the genuineness of these people. And too much authority given too quickly can ruin or spoil a young man. And so rather than start with authority, he needs to start with responsibility. And have you ever noticed how authority kind of naturally flows to people who take responsibility? Have you ever noticed that? People who grasp for authority don't get it. People who just start taking responsibility, authority just kind of naturally goes their way. And I think that's a biblical concept. He must be thought of well by outsiders in verse 7, so that he may not fall into disgrace and to a snare of the devil. And this goes back to the earlier point. Criticism is to be expected, but we need to conduct ourselves in an honorable way so that we have respect even from those who disagree with us. And then there are the qualifications for deacons, which are largely a repeat. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So largely a repeat of what we just read. And these, it makes sense that these qualifications mirror those of the elder. So rather than going through this again, which we won't, we're just going to look at a few of the differences. And we already saw that the deacons, it's not required of them to teach. They can if they want, but it's not required. They serve primarily by taking care of physical needs. And this also probably makes sense why there's a qualification for the deacon's wife in verse 11 in a way that we don't see for the elder's wife uh, in the earlier verses. Okay? And this stands to reason since day-to-day care is more often going to involve a husband and wife team both as they take care of physical needs. Okay? A deacon's wife is often involved in her husband's ministry in a way that an elder's wife may not be. But the overall standards of a time-tested character, of reasonableness, and of a healthy and well-ordered family all show that we're looking for the same kind of a guy. And on this note, the nurture of a a church plant like this means that we had to have elders, we had to have leaders to get the ball rolling. And in fact, that did happen. But we do not have deacons at this point. And so, in one sense, the elders are taking care of both duties, and this isn't a bad thing for now. We don't have many pressing needs at this point, And governance is only one health of a a healthy church. Creating culture is equally important, and you could say in some ways it's even more important. When you have a healthy culture, any kind of church governance model can work. But when you have a bad culture, no kind of church government structure is going to bail you out. You cannot overcome a bad culture with good governance. The culture has to be first, and that's where we are. We are at the culture-building stage in this church plant. And we want to use this time to build a healthy culture. And this means coffee time beforehand. Come early, have coffee, get to know new people. Don't just stand with the familiar people, get to know someone new. This means inviting each other into our homes for meals and activities. And so much of the diaconal or the deacon's ministry can happen just organically at this point. It needs to. That's part of building a healthy culture here. Okay? We can help someone to pay for an unexpected bill even if you're not a deacon Okay? And much of this is already happening. We've seen it, and it's a joy to watch. And as God is kind to us, the time will come when we will most likely want deacons. But for now, 
Our job, and this involves every last one of us, is to build a warm, friendly, loving, and hospitable culture in this church. Take care of your family, take care of others, and then notice needs. And you don't need an official title to do that. Okay? Not every one of us is part of the church's government, but every last one of us is part of a church's culture. And let's take that to the Lord this week as we think about how can I be part of building a healthy culture in this church and once we get to more governance questions, how can we do that well and to the glory of God as well? Let's close in prayer. Lord God, thank you for what you are doing here. Lord, we want to thank you for the vision that so many people have of the need for this. And Lord, we have a tremendous opportunity to build things right the first time rather than to make difficult changes against resistance and against tradition. Lord, but inevitably we are building a culture here, and that is good, and we pray that you would guide us as we build that culture. Lord, I pray for every man, woman, and child here, that you would give us soft hearts, that we would be inviting, that we would be hospitable, that we don't need a title to help each other, to plug in, to pray for one another, to help each other out. Um, Lord, give us eyes to see the needs, and then give us hands that are willing to get dirty. We commit this into your kind and loving hands as you build this church. Lord, this does not belong to us. This is not our pet project. This is yours. Lord, and I pray that we would all have a humble and submissive attitude as we submit to one another and most importantly to you. And I'll ask the praise team to come up for one last song. So the charge is this. The church belongs to Christ and not to us. We are stewards who operate according to his instructions and not innovators who operate according to our ideas. We have a responsibility to not only govern the church according to Scripture, but to build a culture in this church in which Christ is glorified, in the genuine love, peace, unity, and care for others. We all have a part to play in encouraging one another. Let's pray for eyes to see the need and hands that are willing to get dirty. We can overflow with thanks to God for how clearly he has been working and putting unique people and gifts together in this body as he builds Trinity Fellowship. And trust and pray that he will continue to provide all our needs as we move forward. And now receive the benediction from Ephesians 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Go in peace.